All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part three of our roller coaster today. I want to say before I let you, you lose again, Joseph, that if people go to your book, they'll get all, because what we're doing today is more or less surfing on top of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If they want the nitty gritty details, oh man, you go into details uh, that substantiates all these claims and speculations that we're doing today. They have to read the book. Mm-hmm. They just have to. There's so much much uh, uh, fascinating, interesting stuff that leads to these conclusions. We're just hijacking the conclusions here today. So I'm saying this for the critical-minded person because they will find all sorts of objections because we can't provide them those platforms in a mere talk, right? So they have to be aware that they're there. This isn't like a light touch on these things. You're really going in depth to try to substantiates your case but yes we were talking about capstones we were talking about a prison planet we were talking about Mm -hmm. the personalities so you can Mm -hmm. pick it up wherever you like well well you were asking about did somebody put a cap on the earth and and this is where i think it gets extremely interesting because i've i've pointed out this analogy uh between this ancient war being a family feud terribly destructive uh, and basically ending up with everybody more or less in the same position. Um, the the parallel with World War One in this respect is even more interesting. Mm. Because let's look at first the Treaty of Versailles. And I, again, I, I want to point people to the talk I gave at, at the Secret Space Program Conference in 2015 in Bastrop, Texas, because I flesh out this idea for them a bit more. But if you look at the Treaty of Versailles, it does something very interesting. It creates in the Rhineland in Germany, it creates a demilitarized zone where the entire area of Germany west of the Rhine was to be completely demilitarized. And then the Allies were insistent that this demilitarized zone extend, I think it was either 25 or 30 kilometers east of the Rhine with bridgeheads at uh, Koblenz, Mainz, and so on, three bridgeheads. Hmm. So in other words, what the Allies were trying to do, what the French and British were trying to do, was to make any future conflict with Germany, to push the German point of mobilization back behind the Rhine. Mm. And in effect, what they did was they created a quarantine around Germany. And and a similar thing was done in the East, but in a different way. This was Clemenceau's cordon sanitaire, where France had created a bunch of alliances and treaty commitments with Romania and Poland and the Baltic states with the idea of putting an eastern hedge around Germany and also the Soviet Union to prevent them from from, uh, forming any sort of alliance. And, of course, you know, we see this playing out again today. Mm. Um, The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was was the ultimate end to that Versailles system. 
Now, it's interesting because if you go back to the ancient text, particularly the Slavonic text of the book of Enoch, you find a similar idea given with the planet Earth itself. And there's a quarantine zone around the Earth, which depending on the ancient text that you consult, is defined either by the orbit of the moon or by the outermost planet in the solar system, which at the time that those ancient texts were written, the, the planet that was outermost that was known was, interestingly enough, Saturn. Mm. So in other words, you find this idea after, after this cosmic war, you find this idea that there is, in fact, some sort of de facto demilitarized zone around planet Earth. And again, you know, the parallels here are just kind of eerie. Um, what I find interesting in this respect is that if you, if you take the tradition that this quarantine zone is at the orbit of the moon, or as the text of Enoch puts it, under the sphere of the moon. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly what it says. It's, in other words, it's just like the Treaty of Versailles. It's picking mm. an astronomically well-known, well-defined boundary, just like the Rhine River. It's picking a, a, a well-known, well-defined boundary for this quarantine zone. Well, it's interesting because the, the moon has often been suspected as being kind of a forward base for whomever you know, that's yeah. visiting the Earth. And it's interesting that you have this tradition of this quarantine zone. Um, so I think… Yeah, yeah, hang on, hang on. We yeah. have to say also that sure. in ancient mythology, uh, the moon has an interesting place for humans. Obviously, they spiritualized everything, but if we look at the realistic, the, the, the literal aspect of it, when they say that the moon is connected to souls. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, for yes. instance, I think Plutarch uh, was one of the people who said that when we die, yes, the body goes to yes. earth, but the, the, the psyche goes to the moon. In Gurdjieff, uh, he said that the uh, moon was uh, consuming souls, and... Uh, I think Blavatsky uh, in Theosophy, they claimed that the moon was um, a dead planet, uh, poisonous. Yeah, well, this, this, is, this is precisely what I'm referring to, because you, you have uh, the idea of the abode of the blessed right. after death be, yeah, being beneath the sphere of the moon. And this is even picked up by Tertullian, an early, uh, early Christian writer. So in other words, this idea is very old. It's it's very widespread. Yeah, you have to get by past the moon to get to the the fields of Elysium. Right. That's the prison kind of, and many people are thrown back right. at Earth. Right. And you have, of course, John Lear's more materialistic take on it that they have soul towers there that kind of sucks <laughs> or up energetically or whatever, but that is controlled by quote unquote aliens or watchers or guardians or whatever. Right. Right. It's a very, very old tradition. And I think it's a remnant really of this war and, and the possibility that, that there's a treaty involved. And the reason mm -hmm. I say that is as I pointed out in Bastrop, it's very intriguing this idea or this possibility that there's a treaty. Why? Because when we first sent out our interplanetary probes beyond the moon, what did they all say? They all carried a little plaque 
saying we're coming in peace. Well, why is it necessary to announce that? And and like Hoagland says, for all mankind. Yes, exactly. Not just for humans on Earth. Right, right, right. So in other words, I'm suggesting that those plaques were not simply uh, a bit of, of fluff. I'm suggesting that they were doing that because they might have thought we would be in some sort of treaty violation. Mm. And it was necessary to make bona fides clear. So, Which we actually, I mean, here, shoot your conspiracy because they all say we didn't go back after Apollo, what was it, 17? 17, yeah. mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Why? Most people well, say it's been precisely because we've been warned off. Yeah, some people say that. Some people say, of course, we never went. I disagree with them. But mm. uh, I do think that that it's mightily suspicious that Apollo 17 was the last Apollo because Apollo 18, the, the booster was paid for and the crew was selected. So, in other words, that mission was ready to go. And, and the excuse has usually been cited that this was due to budget cuts. Well, it's untrue because, again, the booster was already paid for, the crew was already selected, mm. and suddenly Nixon says, no more Apollo, we can't afford it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right. As if he cared about that. Vietnam. <laughs> Let's not go there. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's it's very very suspicious. There's there's so much going on, I think, behind the scenes with all of this. And again, if you if you view it from the standpoint of this ancient cosmic war, the possibility that there may have been some sort of formal treaty that concluded it, mm. because again, you're dealing with almost the exact same process that you see after World War One at Versailles, you know, inventorying and all right. of this good stuff. And incidentally, what does Versailles do? Well, Versailles prohibits the Germans from producing certain types of weapons that right. the French, the French have. take away the car keys from the adolescents and ground them. Yeah, yeah, take away the car keys. Well, how are they going to enforce that? Well, they're going to enforce it by putting in a system of not only military attaches to go around and visit all the German armaments plants, mm-hmm. but they're going to put into place a system of of spies. Right. to make sure that the Germans are complying even when supposedly the Allies aren't watching. Well, what are the watchers? Yeah. Why are they, why are they watching? <laughs> are, are, we, are we entering Nephilim, Anunnaki? I think, I think to a certain extent you are because the watchers are called the watchers. Well, why, are they, why is it necessary for them to watch? Yeah. Yeah, why are they called the watchers in ancient law? That's true. Yeah, that's I, a weird word, actually. For yeah, for, it is, and and I think it's due to this cosmic war once again because mm, we want to keep an eye on the humans. Yeah, keep keep an eye on these, on the apes. Yeah, keep an eye on these monkeys down here on this, yeah. <laughs> on this little planet because we don't want them to do what they just did. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think when you put all the pieces together, these strange little things are all adding up to, yeah, there may be some sort of uh, cosmic Versailles. <laughs> you know? What about the Van Allen belt? Are you one of those who entertain that that could be artificial? I think, well, let's put it this way. Because it's, it, it's a big point for the moon hoaxers. That oh, yes, I know it is. I, I, I've been around and around with those people about okay. the Van Allen belts. But yes, I I think it's possible that they can be artificial very simply because 
at a certain point in the 50s or early 60s, I forget when it was, there was actually an attempt to uh, explode a, a hydrogen bomb and, and load the Van Allen belts up with even more uh, relativistic particles. Hmm. Uh, I don't remember exactly when this was, but there were studies, and I, I think it may have actually been done, but there were at least studies about how to how to create this if it should ever become necessary. So, you know, if they had the technology in the 50s and 60s, uh, presumably an ancient, sophisticated uh, interplanetary civilization could do the same thing. Mm. Uh, is that the quarantine zone? Maybe. Uh, we don't know. Oh, I, I, I got a dark idea. What if the moon itself at least it is indirectly because we're dependent on it to have life on earth right but what if the moon itself is some kind of weapon pointed towards earth you say it, in the book that it rings so here we have the and we know you can go into it if you want but that's also a, a clue that it's a part of this sound based mm -hmm. technology well it 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 would if it's hollow it's going to ring if it's if it's any sort of uh differentiated uh structure inside of it in other words the center of the moon is more dense than the outer part if there's any sort of structure like that it's going to have a certain ringing mm. uh capability whether it's hollow or not the really interesting thing though is is your hypothesis that it might be some sort of weapon because what do you see on the side of the moon facing the earth you see the maria Mm. which are if you look at the maria you know they, they always appeared to me to be blast zones right uh there's all sorts of very very heavy metals in the maria titanium you know beryllium yeah. you know just weird stuff <laughs> you can't write down to it that looks like it's just been blasted and melted and glossed and, and melted and yeah there's there's evidence of some of that so, yeah, you've got a lot of strange stuff on the moon that makes it appear like it might have been involved in that war in some fashion. Mm. Uh, the Valle Marineris on Mars, yet another big gaping scar on a planetary body that could easily be the result of war. And again, I'm, I'm, I lean to that view rather than to the electric universe natural catastrophist ex explanation. There's a reason that Mars is associated with war, and I think we need to start uh, taking that very seriously. But getting back to this, all these details, it, it looks increasingly like you're dealing with a war. So if you're dealing with a war, what happens at the end of it with the high contracting parties? Well, there's a treaty, probably, somewhere, mm -hmm. that would seem to indicate that we get little glimpses of or little kind of decayed evidences of in some of these texts with this idea of a quarantine zone or the zone of the blessed being at such and such a place in, in the solar system. Um, I think I think it's entirely possible that we're dealing with something like that and that the reason that we've put these plaques on our space probes is that the, the uh, powers that be – as mankind was entering the space age, realized on the basis of some of this type of analysis of ancient texts that, hey, we better be sure that we're not stepping across some line that's not... Yeah, I don't think it helped that we, we exploded atom bombs either in the same period. Well, that certainly didn't help, but <laughs> it, was also, it's, it was also the clue 
that we had access now to a technology that could send out those longitudinal pulses in the fabric of space-time, which is exactly what I think happened. And somebody out there had had the ability to detect that, and that's why you and to the UFOs. Yes, that yeah, yeah. bingo, bingo, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting that they show up in 1946 in the Baltic states rather than over New Mexico. Yeah. So take that for whatever. <laughs> for whatever. Well, they do also show up, uh, you know, in New Mexico. But then after New Mexico is relevant in this perspective. Well, what I'm. Because we, we, what I'm getting at, yeah, no, I'm, say, I'm saying they pop up all over the place where we have the huge weapon, right? Dangerous weapons, and yes, it started in '46 uh, in the Baltic states, but after that, you can see kind of a correlation. Well, I'm getting at, the, I'm getting at the Germans, you know, in my hypothesis, yeah. actually testing an A bomb in, in 1944 in the Baltic. Exactly. So um, I think you know that's that's the other thing that. Um, Ufology wants to look at at the appearance of UFOs in response to the A bomb, and you know that was suggested by Frank Edwards, as a matter of fact. And what I'm, you know, what I'm arguing is that if you're going to argue that, then why are they showing up in the Baltic? Oh, lo and behold, looky here, we have allegations of German nuclear tests, <laughs> and all the evidence that they have been tampering with our nuclear arsenal. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. And the Soviets, for that. Like good watchers. Yeah, like good watchers. Bingo. 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 But who, in your hypothesis, who are the Anunnaki and the Nephilim? Are they the same group? You have a a chapter called The Good, The Bad, and The Nephilim. (laughs) Well, I think think that if you take the texts at their word, Mm -hmm. um, the Nephilim and the Anunnaki, I think, are, are the same group of people. It's just... You know, one is the Sumerian term, one is the other is the Hebrew term. Right. Uh, I think that they are predominantly bad. I mean, if you want to want to, in our perspective, yeah, mm. in our in our moral thinking, um, because they they they're constantly interfering, and they don't appear to have by any of the texts that you read, they don't appear to have too much high regard for human life, other than as kind of inter-celestial sex partners. You know? <laughs> no, but I mean, any prisoner would regard their their wardens as bad. And, uh, you know, where there's absolute power, that follows right. corruptions. Uh, many wardens look at their prisoners with the same contempt. Right, right. So I think, yeah, I think if if we're dealing with survivors of that war with these groups, then we're dealing with the bad party. Um, but again, my model, as I as I mentioned earlier, is that there were survivors of the war. Basically, that the elites of or the deep states, if you will, yeah. of of both uh, combatants in that war survived, and as a result, they were trying to jumpstart humanity again on this road to technological progress. And as a result of that, at times they had to make common cause. Mm. Um, and again, you know, the World War One analogy certainly holds true because you see after that war, you see very strange conflicts of interest, certainly between the, the former central powers and the allied powers. But you also see these strange examples of cooperation as well. Mm. 
So again, it was a matter of necessity. They had to cooperate. Uh, the Soviets and the Germans had to sign the Rapallo Treaty and so on and so forth. So you see the same pattern in the ancient texts. Let's take that uh, reasoning to its uttermost. And because if um, you watch uh, that part of history, then the First World Wars, and we see, mm -hmm. like you say, the elites in those countries were puppet regimes. But what happens is that at some point people revolt. And in Germany's mm -hmm. case, it became the reactionary, the fascists took over. And Right. At least at the surface, they had no regard for the old rules for the old elites anti World War Two, right? right? Now, the same could kind of be happening on a global scale that the in the beginning they have uh, obedient uh, mm -hmm. players, but mm -hmm. at some point we revolt and take over the arsenal and, mm -hmm. you know, that because... Uh, The current elite, I mean, they are shoot first, ask after. If they encounter UFOs, etc., they don't seem to be cooperating that well. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yes, it I seems do. That we are, it seems that we are becoming like, in this analogy, like the Nazis did, that, okay, now we're high on this power we have. Let's try to... Well, you're raising... You're raising two very different but very interesting issues here. Um, if you look at the at the cosmic war in the wider context of the attitude of the gods towards humanity, mm. uh, and in particular in the Sumerian text, it's very interesting. You have Enlil and his ilk, uh, the law and order crowd. I, I think of Enlil as kind of a a pantheonic Hitler or Mussolini, you know, I, I'm, here, <laughs> I, I'm here to impose order. Um, if you look at the attitude of Enlil toward humanity, humanity is just simply making too much noise. This is actually what mm. the text states. So he decides to wipe them out. Tower of Babel? Yeah, precisely. And then you have Enki, uh, kind of the Loki character, the yeah, trickster. Good old Loki. And he's he's the one that is trying to plead for humanity. So in other words, as a backdrop to this cosmic pantheonic war, you also have humanity is kind of itself the battleground on which right. it's fought and over which it's fought. Well, let's turn... Yeah, it's like, okay, we, we beat them. What should we do with them? Should we kill them off? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Or should we let them go on in a constraint area? Yeah. So let's look at modern times. And you mentioned the UFO issue and shooting at, at UFOs. What I think happened, and, and I've, I've pondered this in connection with this cosmic war hypothesis, and I suspect, Al, very strongly, that something like this type of attempt to reverse engineer the, the – reasoning of the post-war American deep state. And by parity of reasoning, of course, the extension of that deep state and its connections to the other allied powers, France, England, and so on. Um, if you look at their behavior toward the UFO issue, it's very paradoxical. You've got, you've got Truman's shoot-down order in 1952, when clearly nobody had the technology to stand up to these things. So why is, mm. why is it being given? 
We had a self-destruction technology of atom bombs. Yeah, we had the self-destruction technology, but nothing to take these things out. But if we are the price, we could use ourselves as hostage, like a like a what you call it, a suicide bomber. Yeah, I think something like this is in play. I think they, I think precisely what you say is they're they're playing a kind of brinksmanship mm. by the late. 1980s what i think is beginning to happen is and 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 i i tried to argue this case in in the two secret space program conferences you've got to establish to whomever is doing this that humanity is capable of engineering on an exotic scale so that by the 1980s, these kinds of hostile activities seem to dwindle off on the part of UFOs. So in other words, you know, Philip yeah. Corso actually comes out in his book, The Day After Roswell, and just bluntly states that the whole mutually assured destruction scenario was as much about the UFO problem as it was about the Soviet Union and United States deterring each other. Right. And... It's interesting that by the 1980s, he said we had managed to stalemate the situation. In other words, what he's implying is that we reached a certain technological uh, plateau that we no longer had to play the mutually assured destruction game mm. and that this activity backs off. So again, I think, I think you have… The prisoners took over the prison. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you have the case that the… Uh, the cosmic war scenario may have been lurking in the background of the thinking of the national security establishment after World War II. Because if you look at the steps they've taken with respect to space mm. since the end of the war, you see it being done in a very deliberate, calculated way. You know, these little placards, we come in peace. Mm. Now we're not even talking about we're coming in peace. No. We're going to go out there and mine it. <laughs> Not just mind it, we're, we're also talking about killing off uh, potential um, right. non-terrestrial beings. Right. Uh, the, the, that meme is being planted into us, fear them, fear them. Yeah. We have to protect Earth, we have to, yeah. Werner von Braun, the scenarios of invasion, etc. Right. It's not as if they are, they are doing their bidding and trying to make us like right. them. right. I mean, right. Stephen Greer isn't very popular with his well, perspective that they are the good guys. So obviously the bad guys scenario is winning. Yeah, I think so. And again, I think it's because you're, you're dealing with very possibly people in the national security establishment, not only of this country, but, you know, other Western countries that are looking at this problem from the cosmic war scenario. You know, we've been here before. We don't want this group coming down here and interfering with us again. Mm. The last time they did, look what happened. So, yeah, I think I think this very much is a part of their thinking. This is an interesting hypothesis. And I'll throw into the mix an other interesting uh, potentially correlation, and that is that in the 80s, it's rumored that's when we unearthed something in Antarctica because obviously we are not using the pyramid as a weapon today to, to right. fend them off. Right. And I'm not even saying that it has to be a pyramid in Antarctica, but if we found some ancient thing that can be used as a weapon, <laughs> that could put us in the front seat again. You know what I mean? Well, look, Antarctica, 
I, I strongly suspect, Al, that there's something about Antarctica that, that is not being told. I strongly suspect that it is your scenario that, that they found something down there. I think this may have been even uh, possibly found or indications of it found even with that uh, Nazi expedition before World War II. Mm. Um, because the the whole post-war development in Antarctica, beginning with Operation High Jump and all of the strangeness surrounding that, and then you have in you know just in recent year and a half, you've had the Secretary of State, the American Secretary of yeah. State, go to Antarctica in the middle of one of the most hotly contested elections in American history. Astronauts. Astronauts, an Apollo <laughs> astronaut, the patriarch of Moscow. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I want to go down this road next time, okay, With, connected <laughs> to your Antarctica book. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, what I'm really getting at, though, is, is I'm, in, I'm in agreement with you. I think mm. it's entirely possible that they have found something down there. Right. Uh, either by way of an ancient civilization or possibly a, a very sophisticated technology, possibly both. Who knows? The, the strangeness of people going there, uh, when you add it all up, I mean, when you add up all the people associated with or going to Antarctica, I mean, we've got everybody from Hermann Goering to Rudolf Hess to the Patriarch of Moscow to, to John Kerry to Buzz Aldrin. This is a weird list of people. <laughs> it is, but, but I mean, this awe, oh, it's evil itself and everything. This awe that they show for Antarctica, let's go down and pray, could be, <laughs> I mean, substantiated by finding a, like a Death Star weapon thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah destiny uh, changing thing that should i mean it's the kids who's played with matches stumbling over an atom bomb that that yeah. would be you know mind-blowing yeah it's something and it's, put a grave uh, seriousness to our existence yeah it's something that's got their attention i mean it has to be and i i think again that given the kind of speculation and, and big broad scenario that we're painting they, they it all points back to this ancient high civilization and the possibility of some big technology. Hey, what if they found the thing that were hidden? That, again, that could be. You know, there was a story out, Al, on the internet. I think it was put out by Sorcha Falls, so take it with a big, huge bag of salt. But mm. uh, there was a story about two years ago that the reason the Patriarch of Moscow went down there was that the Saudis of all people oh had dug up something as they're you know rebuilding the Grand Mosque in Mecca mm. that they had dug up something and it so alarmed them that they didn't know what to do about it so you know well let's take it to the big Christian patriarch who who supposedly took it on a on a Russian ship down to Antarctica and then according to the story performed ancient rituals over it well I don't know. I suspect that the truth is they found something in Antarctica, but could it have been one of these lost technologies mm. from that time period? Yes, and here's why. If you look at Antarctica, most people think that that continent was at one time a, a temperate climate because there are flora and fauna that are locked under the ice. That oh, yeah. Um, and the other thing about Antarctica is that 
it appears to have slid to its current position in some sort of global catastrophe. Well, that could be the case, too. We've mm. been talking about exploded planets and damage to the solar system. Mm. And finally, Antarctica, if you stop and think about it, is the place on planet Earth that best fits the basic description of Atlantis. Why? Well, it's an entire continent that's literally under water. It's under lots of ice. So if that, And something put it there very suddenly. Yeah, and something put it there very suddenly. You have fossilized trees and everything. If if but the point is, is if this was once an inhabited continent, during it would have been possible that it was in that state during that war or after. Yeah. And therefore, if you're taking inventory and hiding things, that would be possibly one place you'd hide them. So Exactly. And, and also there's ancient texts claiming that in the Golden Age, the Earth wasn't tilted, but that uh, during the fall, yeah. uh, it tilted. And, and, and a tilt would be like a, like a soft uh, result of this cosmic catastrophe that havoked sure. much more the other planets. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, again, we're speculating, but in such a way that, that all of the context fits. So, again, I have no difficulty. In fact, my, my, my gut suspicion, Al, is precisely that they found something there. Mm. And it's either profoundly old and sophisticated or it's profoundly sophisticated and off-world, possibly both. Mm. Um, and they're just not talking. Yeah, in, you mentioned the Saudists, those bastard Satanists. But uh, <laughs> they have this stone that they're worshipping. That's from outer space, isn't it? Yeah, the Kaaba. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's rumored to be a meteorite. Right. Um, the the only Westerner that has ever seen it, I forget what his name was, the British guy that pretended to be a Muslim and and made the Hajj and actually. Um, got close enough to pull the wrapping back and take a look at it. Um, but yeah, it supposedly is a meteorite, but in Islamic tradition, it's also in some versions of it, as I recall, it's also the foundation stone of the world. Wow. And you know, what better way to hide one of these ancient things than to make it a, a object of religious veneration that no one could look at. Yeah, but that would have happened anyway, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Any ancient technology, when the technology paradigm is gone, will be treated with classic. It's like the cargo cults, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. But before we closing shop, uh, we have been promising them that we're going to go into some of the personalities of this ancient mm -hmm. drama. Mm -hmm. um, do you still have those uh, fresh in mind that you can give us an account? Well, yeah, I think, I think. I think you're dealing here. I, I already mentioned Enlil and Enki. I think yeah. I think if you if you're looking at the two factions in that cosmic war, you're dealing with two factions that are utterly divided as to their attitude toward humanity. Does the text say anything about why they hated each other so much? Uh, again, I think it has to do with humanity. Um, there's, okay. there's, so it wasn't like a, a someone raped someone else and, and no, stuff no, like that no. family feud. Okay, it's it's two things that the texts are talking about in terms of the causes belly. Um, number one is humanity itself. 
Uh, one faction wants simply to wipe it out, Anki wants to save it. Uh, the the other causes belly is precisely who gets to control the tablets of destinies. In other words, who has the right to use them? Hmm. And so the war is literally fought not only by these things but over these things. And I'm I'm willing to go so far as to say that there may be some sort of connection between those two things. In other words, humanity may be in, tied up in some very deep way with the tablets of destinies. We certainly get that idea from uh, the religious traditions of the area, Islam and Christianity in particular, where you have this idea that the devil revolted against God because he was disgusted at the creation of humanity. Mm. Um, so that's very strong. And the Gnostic talk about uh, the demiurge. That. Yeah, the Gnostic, yeah, the Gnostics talk about the demiurge and the archons and so on and so forth, and mm. uh, you get this idea that humanity is kind of a linking being between levels of of the cosmos. So hmm. it could be that I don't know, but uh, there's a spiritual aspect to that. Yeah, there's a spiritual aspect about energy and sacrifice, but we'll not go down, down that road today. That's reserved for a philosophical show, right? But it, I think it is part of this. But yeah. uh, the the other characters that you have to look at, I think, in terms of this cosmic war, are two mm -hmm. in particular. One, of course, is Ninurta, who's who's the fellow in the Babylonian epics that actually goes in and finishes off this, this great weapon and then takes the inventory. But the other fellow that you have to look at, I think, very carefully is Nergal. Mm. Uh, Nergal is an interesting, not well-known uh, Sumerian Babylonian deity. But Nergal is, in fact... Heracles or Hercules or Ares. In other words, Nergal is Mars. Right. That's their name for Mars. Right. Now, it's very interesting. I pointed this out in Giza Death Star de uh, Destroyed. If you take the face on Mars, okay, mm -hmm. and tilt it, uh, view it from the computer generated side, not head on, yeah, but right. in profile. profile. Mm. Right. If you do that and then compare it to depictions of Nergal from the side, they're almost identical. Wow. It's creepy. Huh. And again, you know, that has no evidentiary value other than in the context of all of this other stuff where it may may be significant. But Nergal's the other character here. Um, so what role did Nergal have in this epic? He's the one, if you read, he's the one that goes down into the bowels of hell to recover some of this technology and enable his rule. Could it be Prometheus we're talking about here? Yeah, I think so. You've got, he's kind of a, if you want to look at Was he punished? No, but he is kind of a um, he's kind of a proto Prometheus, a proto uh, quasi Lucifer type character. Mm. Um, he's he's very he's very weird, but very you know obviously with his association to Mars, very warlike. So it's those four deities, and then of course Tiamat. You've got Tiamat. Uh, her aide de camp, so to speak, a fellow by the name of Kingu, 
and she's battling Marduk. So in other words, if you line it all up, on the one side it appears that you have Marduk to give him the Egyptian name Ra. Mm. Um, okay, I'm with you. Enki, Ninurta, and then on the other side you have... En- Enki would be Tooth, right? Or Hermes. To, uh, Enki would be Tehuda, yeah. Could be Tehuda or Hermes. Mm. Uh, on the other side you have Enlil, Tiamat, uh and the law and order crowd. crowd Those I would brand mark immediately uh, as the bad guys. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, Enlil is just, oh, I I don't even want to get started. No, no, come on. Come on. Those are are the, no, 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 that's okay. (laughs) No, those are the main characters insofar as you're dealing with the Sumerian texts. Um, but but Enlil and that crowd was those who was originally in power, right? Right, right. And did the other crowd revolt against them? Yes, and again, it's part of the reasons for the revolt is humanity. You're looking. You're looking at. Right. You're looking. If you if you view it a certain way, you're almost looking at Kronos and Zeus. Right. You've got the old order and the new order. And clearly this is playing out in the Sumerian text. You've got an old order and you've got a new order. And the problem is part of the new order wants this little monkey to thrive and the old order doesn't. So Obviously the the, the new order won. Well, we are here. Yeah, the new order did win. We're here, but we're not free. We're crippled in a certain way. Yeah, Yeah, but that could be the... uh, damage of war yeah that's true too that's true too it's difficult because people always want you know the thing that makes this difficult is that people always want to try and squeeze this into uh some sort of of western quasi-christian template and i don't think it's possible to do that without you know having to chop off a lot of sharp rough edges Mm. Uh, certainly there are obvious resonances with with christian tradition but uh it's it's very difficult to draw exact parallels um well it's it's, a christian lore is is so so new it's so degenerate compared to the original Uh, right should have access to the library of alexandria or something we have to make sense (laughs) of everything here well, let me let me give you an example of why it's difficult to do. And I mentioned this mm. I mentioned this in the book. We all know the Tetragrammaton from Exodus chapter three, where Yahweh says to Moses, you know, Moses asks them, Well, who should I tell them sent me? You know, referring to the Hebrews. And Yahweh's response is, Tell them I am sent you. Mm. I am who I am. Ego sum, qui sum. Right. Or ayer, asher, ayer. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Hebrew, ea, asher, ea. All right? Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, uh, I think it was uh, Rollins that made this argument. If you look at ea, that is actually the Sumerian name for Enki. So you might have a pun here taking place in in the Hebrew text. Ea, Asher, Ea. Tell them Ea sent you. Right, right. Or, 
and of course Ea is Yah in, in Hebrew. So en- Enki is saying, tell him Enki sent you. <laughs> <laughs> So, in other words, you know, that is one little very weird kind of punning possible indicator that there's more going on here than meets the eye. Mm. But uh, other than that, you know, it's very difficult to, to squeeze this whole Babylonian pantheon into into the uh, glosses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, into the monotheistic religions and their texts. Although you get, when you look at those texts, you do get those little resonances like the one I just mentioned to you right. that somehow survive. <laughs> you know? mm. So it's, it's very, very difficult to draw exact parallels. I do think that you're dealing with a broad mythological template that somehow manages to translate itself yeah. in different ways from from uh, Sumer cultures. into yeah. Egypt, into Greece, into Rome, and so on. You've got basically the same uh, things, but the details are not always going to line up exactly. No, no, no. Your premise is that it's, it's contaminated, so, yeah. so it's a kind of an inductive detective work you have to do to, to trace. Exactly. So that, exactly. That go, that, that's okay. We, we, we get that and we accept that. But would you say then that the new fact, the new order, are they the ones who, okay, humans are granted to exist, but let's now hid these things so we never get back in this, I mean, we made, we waged a war for their existence. Let's not repeat that. So let's hid these explosive uh, toys I, so that humanity doesn't put us in this predicament again in the future because it's so costly even for us gods to have this damn war over them, you know? Well, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. My, my working model has always been that the elites of those, of that war, survived and possibly and my belief is have survived down to our day and the reason i say that is if you look at the you mean on earth on earth yes if you look at the current elite in charge in the west it looks very much to me like the old order they're calling it the new world order (laughs) But it looks very much to me like... And Lil. Yeah, it it looks very much to me like this is the same people that wanted to wipe everybody out. Because, again, we've had indications that that's precisely what they want to do. Yeah, Um, yeah. And at a certain point, there was an intervention that prevented them. So I think that we're looking at something massively huge that's been persisting throughout human history and elites in the background trying to manipulate things. Um, yeah, I, I, I have to be critical here because um, I have to be honest. And sure. I know you, you and Hoagland and many other have that perspective that the elite survived and somehow got back in business. And uh, those observations are true. There is a correlation, but it doesn't have to be causation because let's say you're part of an ancient elite and uh, you are disconnected from the technological reality eventually over time. Mm-hmm. They are bound to take the cargo cult perspective. They are bound to, even, even if they have inside information, they wouldn't have premises to make them understand the ramification of what we're dealing with. Oh, but, I, I think I think you're I think you're misunderstanding. 
kidding me. When I say survive, I don't mean survive with full knowledge. Oh, okay. They, okay, uh, I see. They, they kind of figured it out again, piece yeah, by piece. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I, think I think certain key notions or, or conceptual nodes survive, but they don't right. necessarily survive with the full knowledge on the part of those preserving that knowledge. Uh, and in fact, I, I would go further and say I, it may not even be the case that you have. Oh, it can be a revival instead of a survival. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's the case that you need to posit that the institutional personal connections exist from that cosmic war up to this, up to today. It's rather, which I certainly would would aver would be possible. Mm. But it's rather probably the case that what survives are those notions themselves and right. the agenda or plans that those notions engender. Right. So it and the philosophical implications right. and, and and attachments. Right. That makes much more sense to me, and I think it's a very important caveat because there's many people who who interpret this uh, theory of yours very very literal and, and think that right. it almost like... And, and unfortunately, they also project it onto current mm -hmm. cultural mm -hmm. factions. And, and I think, yes, there, there may be cultures that have been carrying these impulses, right. but it doesn't mean that we're infiltrated by a cabal of enlightened evil demons who have known all the time. Right. And for some reason just now are starting to shake their ugly head. And, and, and you know, that can lead to Holocaust, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Yeah, well... So I, I'm much more with you with a revival or a kind of a piecing back the puzzles together. And now that we have the paradigm and the technology, putting two and two together and voila. Yeah, mind you, I'm not... The I, agenda is back. Mind you, I'm not ruling out the other, but my, okay. my druthers are that if there is a continuity of institution, so to speak, then at best we might be looking at a continuity from uh, certain periods in ancient Egypt, but mm. not, a, not an unbroken continuity in terms of something going all the way back to that cosmic war. Uh, that would that no, but enough enough survived for them to piece it back together and and get back to that paradigm they had right, back then. Right, right. If you look at if you look at and I discussed this a bit in in Giza Death Star Destroyed. If you look at some of the Masonic charges, for example, right uh, from the 17th century, you you find this idea that yeah, we're we're going to try and piece this back together. Um, it is interesting so, that the Masons have been very closely uh, affiliated with NASA. Oh yes, as, as has the Nazis. Yes, yeah, exactly. Both groups, both groups are suspects in this scenario. Oh yes, absolutely. And you know, Hoagland brings that out very, very well in mm. in his books, um, particularly in Dark Mission. This idea that you have basically three factions within NASA, two of them being the Masons and, and the Nazis. Yeah, I've, I've been always critical to the magicians, and he actually agreed with me when I launched that uh, criticism, <laughs> because my point is that the magicians are, first of all, they really are just a handful. They didn't wield that much power. And second of all, they could be 
in many ways regarded as a fringe or an extension of the Masons. Yeah. Or, or under Nazis, actually. Yeah, both of them. So, yeah. 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 So, but but I think the two big ones are the Nazis and the Masons, as far as NASA goes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm. I agree. But but again, again you know, yeah. when you're dealing when you're dealing with the Masons, again, you're dealing with a group that, if you examine their formal charges, they they have this idea very clearly stated that you know we're trying to recover, we're trying to turn yeah. the stream, and recover this antediluvian knowledge. Yeah, but the same can be said for the Nazis. Yeah, but in a different way. Um, the Nazis are not trying to do it in, as as a, a secret society with initiations and so on. Um, really? Have you heard about Himmler? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, but Himmler doesn't represent all of the Nazis. Come on, I, you know me. I've written about Himmler yeah, and yeah, the yeah. SS. Of but, course. But they're not – Himmler and the SS aren't the whole show. Um uh, I think you're dealing there with with a much more complex phenomenon. Masonry is much more homogeneous, I think, in that respect. Oh, yeah. Masonry has a lineage. Right. Right. Uh, it seems to me in this perspective that the Nazis kind of uh, discovered this thing and put their own spin on it. Right. Exactly. Their own purposes. But yeah. uh, getting back to the ancients, uh, I don't want to leave uh, before we decode it a little further – so, do we have anything in the texts that indicate that they did reconcile? You mean these two groups? Yeah, yeah, the warring parties. I mean, there was uh, uh, some kind of truce, obviously, and some kind of deal, but didn't one triumph over the other? And, and uh... Well, in terms of the war, yes, but I don't think in terms of ancient texts that you're looking for or that you can actually say that there were reconciliations. I think what you do see, if you take that model and look at history from that perspective, you see certain periods in history where it appears, and again, I want to underline that word appears, Mm. that they made common cause for a while because they had to. Uh, And then there are other periods of history where you see deep fissures appearing between the two. Uh, and I'm thinking if, you, if you're wanting periods of history where I would argue this case, uh, I would look at Egypt, uh, particularly the, the uh, Pharaoh Akhenaten. Mm. Uh, I would look at some of the things that Paracelsus had to say about uh, the Hebrews wandering back and forth between Egypt and Babylon. He has a very interesting take on it. Uh, I would look to the Middle Ages when you find the rise of the Crusading Orders, in particular the Templars and, and the Teutonic Knights. Right, right. Um, so I think I think I think it's clearest in the Middle Ages when you start to see the fissures appearing. Um, in Bosley's uh, version of the origins to some of these factions, mm-hmm. and in, even in the Nazi lore itself, they say that uh, Teutonics, there could be a connection there that that are more like the Masons than we think in terms of being a survival, because obviously there were no such thing as a Nazi uh, right. before Hitler, but the origins to the Nazis could be uh, a group in the know too. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think that's always lurking in the background of the Nazis. Um, 
you know, the Tula Gazelle shop being the most yeah. clear and famous example. But um, what Bosley is onto is actually coming out of a book by Paul Winkler called The Thousand Year Old Conspiracy that he wow. connects, yeah, he connects all of that to the founding of the Teutonic Knights with uh, wow. Konrad von Salza and the Emperor Frederick II. And the Templars did discover stuff, we know that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, they did. Uh, I want to have you on for, for a show uh, on your book Hermetica at some point, too. Sure, yeah. I think the, I think the Templars probably knew stuff before they even went there and, and yeah. simply discovered things that confirmed some of the stuff that they already No, they didn't stumble over. No, they didn't no, they stumble. Didn't, no, they certainly didn't stumble, no. <laughs> No, that 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 whole story is ain't gonna wash. <laughs> they were obsessed, man. They were obsessed. Well, they were, yes, yeah. absolutely. But you know, I think I think a case can be made that the Templars are representing a uh, again a, a body of knowledge that manages to survive in some of the Senate, old Roman senatorial families that were connected with, you know, the Lateran bureaucracy surrounding the papacy. And then, and in fact, both the Masons and the Nazis could be a split off from that one line. Possibly. Two, diff two different takes on. But, on but I, I rather suspect that, that there's more going on. And let me emphasize, I'm speculating here because you're, you're, you're forcing me into areas that I have not written about, but that I've suspected mm -hmm. for a long Great. time. Yeah. Um, and that is, again, you have the founding of the Templars and then you have the founding of the Teutonic Knights. Mm. And I suspect that those two are related events, but that they're not coming out of the same motivation. In other words, I think there is a clear case that you have two very different elites because in the case of the Templars, of course, you have Bernard of Clairvaux hanging around in the background yeah. <laughs> with them. And in the case of, of the Teutonic Knights, you've got people like Conrad von Zalza and, and Frederick II, who are anything but, you know, good ecclesiastical churchmen. Mm -hmm. um, so there's something very different at work in each of those two orders. Uh, and I suspect they are related in their founding. Yeah, yeah, I talked with a, a grandmaster, uh, not the grandmaster, but a grandmaster right. of the Teutonic Knights back in Germany many years ago, and he claimed himself that there was a relation to the Templars. I mean, that that was on a part of their official narrative. Right. Today. Yeah, there there is an official narrative, but when I say related, I'm suspecting that uh, the the Teutonic Knights are a reaction to something that uh. they are not. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. In other words, it's not coming from the same source. It's right. coming from, it's coming from a different motivation. But that you're dealing with people that know that the Templars are up to something, and they know what it is, or or know much of what it is, and they're going to combat it. Because we must remember that, in spite of the ecclesiastical trappings of the Teutonic Knights, this is an order that is not unlike the other orders is not under the direct jurisdiction of the papacy it's under the direct jurisdiction of the holy roman emperor oh, right, right, right. and that's a very different matter because yeah. of course uh ultimately the the grand mastership of the teutonic knights passes to the house of hohenzollern so you know that's <laughs> that opens another can of and, and by the way the, the nazis are nothing if not a reaction too yes exactly mm. exactly 
exactly. So but you said that the motivation for the war would be humanity. But in your book, you're talking about the theft of this technology and the hegemony of it. Yeah. Well, the technology is a, a hegemonic technology. It's a technology of mass destruction, and it's a technology that, uh, if you if you have mastery of it, it gives you you know it's a universal technology. It's a cosmological technology, uh, and that's why the war is so bitter. Um, But who who said in the text to have taken over the control of this? Pardon me. Who who in the texts are said to have taken over the control of this? Well, in which faction? I think ultimately the faction that that wins in the cosmic war and and takes the technology, destroys some of it, and hides the rest of it. The new order. I think that the new order. I think it's the Enki faction. Uh, I think the faction that wanted to keep the technology and use it was the Enlil faction. So, so if they had been allowed to wield it, we maybe wouldn't be here today. Precisely. Well, they the technology was wielded; it blew up a planet. Yeah. But um, as to who wielded at that point, I don't know. Yeah, right. And why? I, I, that's the problem. That is precisely. So, if and Lil did not reside on Earth, and I do think they say that that his main abode wasn't Earth. It could be his main base that was blown up, the exploded planet. Possibly, yeah, possibly. You see, huh. again, I want I want to stress. I paint I paint the cosmic war picture in the book in a very very broad sense in fact i don't even get get into these types of questions no which is why we can afford to speculate now you know yeah i'm 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 speculating on uh the basis of a few things that that i cover in some other books but Mm. in in that book i'm i'm simply erecting a very broad scaffolding that number one this war was fought here's the people that fought it here's what it's fought over here was what it was fought with right um but as to who's doing what at a certain particular time no it's it's not that kind of book and the reason why and i i point this out in the chapter dealing with chronology the reason why is that there is so much data that one would have to wrestle with and assimilate to to get that kind of detailed blow-by-blow accounting of that war that it would i think literally be impossible for one individual to do that and the other problem is is we're still in the process in this alternative field of research in hammering out that standard narrative uh you know when did the flood occur is the flood something that is primarily an event on planet earth or is it to be located elsewhere uh when did this cosmic war occur when did the planet blow up well as i indicated when we first started talking van flandern actually gives two very very different dates uh, and they're different not only in terms of, of nearness or farness to the contemporary times. They're different by an order of magnitude. One is 65 million years ago. The other is 3.2 million years ago. And then you add in the dates of the Mars researchers, Dr. Mark Carlotto, it's 600,000 years ago. 
So in other words, there's so many different diverging dates for all of these things. That's the reason why I had to paint with very, very broad strokes. And the same thing holds true with, you know, who's doing what and when with what. Yeah. We just had on a chat post more into the theosophical version of, of this based upon the uh, old document that has uh, that many claimed were was an invention of Blavatsky, but has been rediscovered. It's called the Book of Zion. Yes, and according to that, uh, we are talking about millions of years. And you know as well as me that Cremo and others have documented. Uh, oh that, yes, yes, that there were humans beings all the way back, actually, to the less to the more radical uh, aspect of mm-hmm. uh, Van Flanders' timeline, namely even 65. I mean, 2.3 is nothing. Even 65. And if there's been humans around for such a long time, all the myths and survival things, you would expect them to be conflated. You would expect them to diverge. It wouldn't be a uniform. Right. And I... I, I I do point out Cremo and Thompson's uh, research in the book for mm-hmm. this pure and simple reason to point out that, you know, the evidence for uh, humanity being around a lot longer than the standard narrative of 150 to 200,000 years ago is, it has some evidence behind it. Um, of the two dates, my preferred date is usually the 3.2 million years ago date simply because most of the extraterrestrial artifacts and so on that others are encountering seem to to date from a period closer to us rather than right. that far back. But again, that's all up in the air. That could go out the window tomorrow. Yeah, that's easy. It's the least leap. That, that's easy. Right. But we have right. indications that man has lived parallel with dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So anything is, is possible. But I appreciate the openness. You're not presenting a closed case, of course. No. You're, a, you're no. an academic. And so, uh, but that's why we could be all over the place today because it allows for all these speculations and possibilities. And, and oh, yeah. we have to emphasize, like you do all the time, of course, that uh, yes, you are providing a grounds that can't be disputed, but then there's all the ramifications and implications and consequences, and that's where we're right. we're all over the place. Right. We're not lunatics. We know that much of this is beyond evidence, of course. But right. that's also the point with the 65 million year, because the further back you go, the less fragments would survive. It just stands to reason. Yes, so, exactly. Exactly. But the, yeah, but, but according to the, the guest I had on recently, he's operating with a chronology of millions of years too. So that, that's more and more people close door is now entertaining that. More and more people are realizing we're not talking about 200,000 years. We talk right. about millions of years. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything you would like to add to uh, your book, The Cosmic War, uh, at this juncture? No, other than what you said before, that, you know, if what we're talking about tonight is is kind of the Cliff Notes high overview. Um, mm. The book the book itself is very detailed. Um, and I think once people assimilate the details, then they'll have a better picture of, of how much evidence there really is for for what we've been talking about um in my view it's very persuasive you know because we've got these wars of the gods traditions 
from all over planet Earth in one form or another. Um, and I think I think if you look at that and compare the text to what's out there on on the other planets and so on, yeah, I think it happened. Mm. Indeed, and um, I, I re- really recommend this book because you go into so many many people think you only go into the ancient stuff, or, and or, although you do do that, you also go into actually almost all areas of of your current list of books that you've done. Right. You find yeah, all the, sorts of aspects to it here. Yeah, that is the book that I regard as kind of the uh, foundation for all the other books, and, and I do mean all the other books. Um, maybe, maybe the one book. If someone doesn't have one book of you, this could be w- one of the optimal books to get. Yeah, if I were, if somebody were to ask me, well, what one book of yours would you get? I would say probably that one. Mm. Uh, because it it grounds the physics thinking, it grounds the historical analysis that I do, it grounds the way I, I deal with texts. Um, it it gives you an overview not only of of that hypothesis, but the way I think. And many people have told me that that book has helped them understand the other books simply by by way of of demonstrating how I think and, and how I reason. Yeah. And, and you do provide uh, references and footnotes too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All my books are footnoted. I'm, I'm a stickler for that. <laughs> yeah. That's a good thing. Too, too few people in the alternative do that. Yeah. Now, um, I want to say one last thing. Sitchin, didn't he do some errors in the translations? Yeah, there there are people that um, point out that Sitchin makes translational errors, and I have to be honest, my reaction to that is kind of visceral, because this is a standard academic tactic when you want to uh, disparage the argument that someone is making. Right. Um, the as a result of those attacks, what I did in that book was I used accepted standard academic translations uh, of those Sumerian texts. Uh, I did not use Sitchin's translations, and the reason why is I wanted to demonstrate that even with standard academic translations of those texts, you can still argue the case that these texts are talking about something very sophisticated in the best language that they had available. So if you want to quibble about translations, then you can quibble with Stephanie Daly and Jakobsen and some of the other people that have translated these texts besides Sitchin. Mm, good point. Good strategy, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, you do quote the Necronomicon in the book. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. the same version that uh, Levanda is uh, involved in? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's simply quoted as an epigraph. Yeah, sure. To one of the book sections, yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to read it at the end of this show. It seems so relevant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great, Joseph. I think you you provided a very entertaining, if nothing else, and <laughs> interesting take on this big mystery that haunt us and that we'll get back to again and again and again so so thank you for coming on again and doing that oh you're more than welcome thanks for having me back on
Thanks again to Dr. Farrell for joining us one more time, taking on such a fascinating topic that tickles the imagination. Speaking of that, upon closing, I'm going to read you some lines from related texts. But first, I have a message to all listeners who appreciate our shows. You should know that YouTube Gate has eventually reached us. If you have no idea what I'm referring to, we will have a program about this later on. But really, there isn't lack of publicity about it online, especially all over the independent media. Most uh, YouTube channels you follow will probably have mentioned it, complained about it. As for us, they have demonetized half our programs. But worse, they are also burying them so that they lose visibility and therefore we also decline in audience. Only way to counter this is organic spread, which means that we're fully dependent on you to help spread our listenership. Our YouTube channel only has about 10,000 subscribers. Most channels with cats and babies have 10 times that amount. So if you think we should keep creating programs, contribute to this by either donating but only if you can afford it. If not, uh, disable ad block and let the commercials play if the video has ad anymore. Or contribute by helping us get more listeners. Now, listen up, because what I'm about to say is very important. Many subscribers report that they are suddenly unsubscribed to our channels without having done it themselves. I say channels, by the way, because we also created another channel for shorter programs, which you'll find if you go to our main channel, you'll easily see it linked there. So do subscribe to that too. But anyway, we hear similar reports about people being unsubscribed from other independent and listener-funded shows. So it's a trend. Even if this is not related to YouTube's attempt to shrink independent channels as a part of Google, the new owners, plan to transform YouTube into a platform for the dying mainstream TV media, it's still happening. So you ought to make sure that you stay subscribed to us. Without going into detail here and now, the more subscribers we get, the more possibilities we get, and the easier it is for us to stay alive. Also, be aware that even if you subscribe, you won't get noticed about new videos of ours anymore. Well, you can, but it's not... uh, any longer a deliberate part of that service. If you do get, it's not uh, related to you subscribing. So the algorithm and the system has changed. So now, if you want to be notified of our new productions, which are few and far between, as it is, compared to more current programming shows, you also have to click on the bell next to the subscription button. 
since this is new, only an insignificant minority have done this. Hence, we have over 10,000 subscribers who doesn't even know a new program is out. And this has really hurt our numbers. If YouTube hadn't changed, we would have probably about 50,000 views for new videos. Instead, they are at an all-time low. It's not that uh, apparent because it's battled by our organic growth. We have a bigger audience now, so that kind of counters it a little, but it means we're not growing. We're just avoiding being dwindled into nothing. So instead they're at an all-time low and they're buried in the back alley of the tube. So here's what you do. Go to the main page of our YouTube channel, the front page, the landing page, whatever you want to call it. Locate the subscription button up in the right corner in between that button and the channel's subscription number, which is displayed there, you'll see the bell. Click on that button and voila, you'll be notified when you're at YouTube about our new vids. It's not a, an intrusive notification, it's the same that used to come only by staying subscribed. For example, in suggested videos and stuff like that. The more subscribers who do this, who click the bell, the easier it will get for us to grow. Because the algorithm uses info like this in order to determine how much we are worth spreading, etc, etc. I mean, I can't lecture you here and now about how YouTube works. So just <laughs> trust our judgment and uh, please follow uh, these advices. We are very grateful for all you folks who do support us already, financially or otherwise. We couldn't be doing this without you. But we are overwhelmed and understaffed, so for example, if you write us, like many do, please don't expect an immediate reply. We're far behind even on primary duties, like making shows, which after all is why we're here, right? So that has to be a priority, so just keep this in mind and, and don't think we're snobbing you or something. Finally, let me read you some words relevant to today's topic, only meant as poetic illustrations to the show. The following is from the Magan text of the Babylonian Necronomicon. We are the lost ones, from a time before time, from a land beyond the stars, from the age when Anu walked the earth in company of bright angels. We have survived the first war between the powers of the gods and have seen the wrath of the ancient ones. Dark angels vent upon the earth. We are from a race beyond the wanderers of night we have survived the age when Absu ruled the earth, and the power destroyed our generations. And Tiamat has promised us never more to attack, with water and with wind. Know that our years are the years of war, and our days are measured 
as battles. The following is allegedly, I haven't vetted it, an archaeological testimony of a temple scribe, Ishur, living in ancient Sumeria, called the Call of the Watchers or the Coming of the Watchers. The strangers came, and they were not like us, something else but wearing the skins of men, the eyes of men, their hands. We took to collecting the sound of them in our flesh, the aphorisms of power, without substance, yet entirely substance. We felt the remote passing into the definite. We learned the names, the ancient names of these strangers, the names of the Sumerland. Our bodies begin to pulsate to a subliminal rhythm, and we feel the imminence of contained energy soon to be released. We dilate our throats to the air and resonate the ancient names. We convoke the Nephilim, so they come to us, strangers in the skin of men. That's it for now. Thanks for staying with us. I'm your host Al, signing off with Sincere Regards. Be seeing you. Number one.